in the chapter 12. And tonight as we come around the Word of the Lord, the focus of our study is upon the Abrahamic covenant. So over the last number of weeks, we've set the scene, we've set the stall for the importance, the necessity, and indeed the blessing that we can receive from studying the covenants of the Bible. And last week then, we began to consider that first covenant that we see there in Scripture, the Noahic covenant, and now we progress to the Abrahamic covenant. And so to that end, let us read together here in Genesis chapter 12, but we will then be progressing forward into other uh, chapters of Genesis uh, even before we come uh, to comment upon them. So Genesis chapter 12, we'll begin at the verse 1 to begin with. Now the word of the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Then come into chapter 13, and we're going to read together from the verse 14 of this chapter. Just one chapter over, chapter 13, beginning our reading at the verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, After that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And two chapters over more. Let's read in chapter 15. In chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and no one born in mine house is mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted to him for righteousness. 
And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance, and I shall go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now come over to chapter 17, and we take our final reading from the opening of this chapter. When Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thy perfect. I will make a covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And in a reading there at the verse 8 of the chapter 17, and I appreciate your patience even in the, the taking the time to read through all of these scriptures. As we come to consider this covenant, then we see, of course, their scriptural record is across many of the chapters of this book. But as, poor, as important as we have already mentioned, the covenants are. And as we come to consider them, we will mine into the importance of each of these covenants in turn. Of equal importance, surely, to the Bible student is the context of the story. And so, in order for us to truly understand the specifics of each of the covenants, and in turn then to mine out that depth of blessing that we can derive from them, we must begin once again by surveying the context that this covenant is given in. And understanding just a little bit more as to what was the backdrop of all that we have read here together this evening, all that God entered into with this man, Abraham. God steps into Abraham's life here in the chapter 12. And without doubt, the course of Abraham's life is forever altered. 
tells us there in the verse 12, chapter 12 and the verse 1, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. And here we see evidence of the Lord stepping into his life. We see evidence of the beginning of this great alteration that takes place in Abraham's life. Now coming to this account and coming to indeed survey the life of Abraham as a whole, we understand that over a quarter of the entire book of Genesis is taken up and is devoted to heaven's record of God's dealings with this man, with this great patriarch of the faith. Now we come to consider Abraham, of course, on the back of two Sundays. Sunday mornings, whenever we've referenced his name, we've referenced his story. But I hope that that doesn't diminish your appetite. I hope you don't tire easily of this story just yet. For as we come to consider it afresh tonight, I believe that God desires for us to be refreshed in our own spirits and indeed encouraged in our own hearts from all that is contained here in his word. Abraham is described quite rightly as being the original pilgrim, one who realized his was a journey to a prepared place, a preserved place, a peculiar place. And that tonight as we come to consider this man's life, we share a great affinity with Father Abraham. For we too are pilgrims in this world below and our journey will result one day in us entering into our eternal abode, the place called heaven, the place of the blessed, that place that has been prepared, that place that is preserved, that place that we describe as being a peculiar place, but a place that I like to call home. Now notice in verse 4 of the chapter that the Word of God comes to Abraham at a time whenever he is 70 and five years old. Scripture is very clear as to when God enters into this man's life. He's 75 years of age. And if you come across to chapter 25 of Genesis and read with me in the verse 7, it tells us, and these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived in 103 score and 15 years. Now, in chapter 12, we see the beginning of the scriptural record of this man's life. He's 75 years old. In chapter 25, we see the end of the scriptural record of this man's life. He's 175 years old. And so, from chapter 12 right through to chapter 25, we see a time period that's covered of approximately 100 years. The record only begins when God calls him, and by faith, Abraham responds. The record ends, of course, whenever his life here on earth ceases. But why I highlight that as we enter into this account of this great patriarch is simply this. It's unlike every other account that's in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. For as the chapters run in sequences, we see time periods of thousands of years covered in, rest, in the rest of the books. But in a quarter of this book, a quarter of this book of beginnings, God devotes to just a century. Time slows down. The Holy Spirit zooms in on this man. He zooms in on the account of this man's life. And more importantly, he's zooming in on God's dealings with this man that you and I know to be Abraham. God is placing great significance on this man's life and everything that's recorded about it. 
And all of this, I believe, is deliberate. God has a purpose. God has a plan in zooming in in Abraham's life and in helping us to understand just exactly the path that he took, just exactly the interactions that he had with God. But it's also discernible. It's not a mystery, I believe, as to why God focuses so much time and devotes so much space in Scripture to this rehearsal of Abraham's life. In Abraham, God is laying down clear principles Principles of how he deals with man. Principles in regards to his expectations from man. Principles in regards to his patience with man. Principles in regards to his plan and promises for man. Principles in regards to his eternal faithfulness to man. He even goes on to elaborate upon his very presence among man. And all these key truths are found in these chapters. Fourteen chapters in all, taking us across a time period of a hundred years, but laying down timeless principles that you and I do well to learn from today. So it isn't wise for us to rush in and claim the good of the covenant without taking the time to understand the man with whom God makes the covenant, the context the covenant was given in, and the truths evident in the life of this man Abraham before this covenant is formalized. And so to that end, let us notice, first of all, the call of God. The call of God. And for that, we center our thoughts upon chapter 12. We've already read those words together. The Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and I shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here is the call of God. Notice with me that this call is a call of submission. God was calling Abraham to do his will, to lay aside his own feelings, his own ambitions, his own hopes, his own desires, and to step out following God, all because God had called him. It was a call of submission. But it was not only a call of submission, it was a call of sacrifice. For Abraham, we see here, is to leave behind home. He's to leave behind those whom he called family. He was to leave behind all that he counted dear and normal. He was to consider it of little value when compared to the call that God was issuing to him. And so it was a call of submission, it was a call of sacrifice, but it was also, most importantly, I believe, a call to separation, a call to separation. We know that earth, the Chaldees, was not some backwater in those days. Indeed, if you study ancient civilization, Ur will come up numerous times. Why? Because it's believed that Ur was an epicenter of education. There's evidence that points to scientific discoveries and archaeological discoveries that point to a university, perhaps a school at the very least, being present in that location. And so it was a place where those who dwelt within it knew the blessings, knew the provisions, knew the bounties that were to be known in this world. But it was also an idolatrous city, Something that would plague Abraham over and over and over again throughout the course of his life is particularly in the early days of his life of following God. But nevertheless, God calls Abraham from such a place. He was calling him out. 
It says quite clearly there in the verse 1, get thee out. You and I know much of this call of separation, do we not? God has called us as believers out of this world. Wherefore, come ye out from among them, and be ye separate. We're reminded in the word of God that we are in the world, but we're not off the world. And so we too can identify much with this call of separation. But notice the key to the call of separation. Because Abraham was not called out to isolation. He certainly wasn't called out to self-gratification. He was called out but because he was called unto. Tells us there at the end of verse 1, get thee out unto a land that I will show thee. And so there was purpose, there was meaning, there was value to the call of separation that God was placing there before him. That's a reminder to us tonight, is it not, that we are not to use separation as an excuse to live as people above those around us. We're not to be pious. We're not to be self-righteous. We're not to be dogmatic. We are to identify that God's call of separation in our lives, just as it was in Abraham's life, is a call to be separated from the world, but separated unto Christ. To be separated from the old nature, from the old way of life, but we're to be separated onto that way of living which pleases our Master, which pleases the one who gave his life for us. We are to live a life well-pleasing to him. We're to display his love, his mercy, and his grace in all that we say and in all that we do. We too are called to be separated from and separated onto But notice the response of this call. Verse 4, Abraham departed. The call of submission was obeyed. The call of sacrifice was obeyed. The call of separation was obeyed. Abraham got up, got out, and left. And so we see here in chapter 12, the call of God. Come across the end of chapter 15, for we see not only the call of God, but we see the comfort of God. The comfort of God. Read with me in the verse 1 of the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. This verse begins after these things. It's a short phrase, one that we could easily rush past, but I suggest to you that in those three words is communicated a whole breadth and depth of meaning. Because all that's occurred from chapter 12 through here to chapter 15 covers a time period of about 15 years. Fifteen years which have been filled with the call of God. Fifteen years which have been filled with the obeying of the call. A period of time where he backslid and went into Egypt. The days of then that he spent retracing his steps to God. Days of strife with Lot and the herdsmen of Lot. Days of the subsequent separation from Lot. 
days in, whenever he knew what it was to be called to the rescue of Lot, days whenever he went then against the great King Kedilomar and his confederate allies, went to war and retrieved Lot. Days then, whenever returning from that battle, he was face to face with Melchizedek, someone we believe to be a type of Christ. So that short, simple phrase communicates many different events. After these things, so much has happened in the life of Abraham, so much has changed. But in the midst of it all, Abraham receives a word from the Lord. And notice very carefully the wording. This word came unto him. It came to where he was. God came to where Abraham was. There in a moment in life when no doubt he was pondering all that had happened after these things, God came to where he was. Perhaps you're here tonight and a lot has happened in your life. So much has changed. As you sit and reflect on all that has happened, as you take stock, you're a little bewildered inside. But can I encourage you to wait on the Lord? He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Can I encourage you to take confidence from the life of Abraham tonight? Take confidence that you too will know the ministry of the Lord to your heart. Take confidence that he will come to where you are and he will minister to your need even after these things. God will meet you at the point of your need. God will speak a word in season. God will have a message that will encourage you, pick you up, and help you to carry on. And notice this word that Abraham gives. Fear not. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. This is the first fear not of Scripture. And as the law of first mention goes, this is a pretty comprehensive usage of this phrase. Communicates to us a very interesting truth. You and I, when we come to the fear nots of Scripture, more often than not, will consider them to be most important when in the midst of trial, when in the midst of despair. When we're there in the throes of battle against a foe who is large and awesome, and it seems like in every turn and every twist he's prevailing against us, then you and I will cast ourselves more readily than not upon the fear-nots of Scripture. But here the first fear-not of Scripture doesn't come at such a time. Rather, the first fear not of Scripture is given when the man of God is in the presence of God. To understand the significance of this, we have to back up to Genesis in the chapter 3. For whilst this may be the first time we come across the term fear not in Scripture, it is not at all the first mention of fear in Scripture. 
For in Genesis chapter 3, in the verse 10, we read these words, And he said, that's Adam, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. So we see here from Adam's own lips a testimony to the emotion of fear. And why was Adam afraid here in Genesis chapter 3? Well, we know that he is afraid here in Genesis chapter 3 because of the presence of a holy God in the garden. And at that very moment, as Adam knows that God is in the garden, Adam is also aware that in his own life, and his own heart, is now the presence of sin. So as he knows his own sin, as he knows that which he has done to dishonor God, that which he has done to break the very clear command of God, as he knows that at that very moment God is in the garden, Adam is afraid. Now come back to Genesis in the chapter 15. And whilst we don't have a direct reference here to say that Abraham was afraid, by inference, the very fact that God comes and the first words out of his mouth are fear not, testifies to the existence of the emotion of fear in Abraham's life also. And so clearly displayed in the lives of two Old Testament characters is what I suggest to you is a reverential fear of God. To Adam, he was the all-knowing, all-seeing God, one who knew exactly where he was, one who knew exactly the spiritual condition he now was in. But to Abraham here, he's the great Eli Elyon, as he has revealed himself to be in chapter 14, the most high God, the great God of heaven and earth. And so displayed in two Old Testament characters, as they understand who they are, and as they understand whose presence they are in, there's testimony of reverential fear. Tell me tonight, do you fear God? I would suggest to you that as a body of believers in this 21st century, we do not fear nor regard God as we should. I believe God, or I believe Satan has succeeded in demeaning God, of belittling God in our eyes. To the very point that many believers are conditioned to consider God as simply one of us, our pal, our mate, someone we can be casual around, someone whose presence we can saunter into when it suits us, when it's convenient. And oh yes, in times of trouble and distress, well, in times like that, it's okay to think of God just a little bit more powerful, just a little bit more capable than we are. But even then, it's very often only a last resort. 
For many today, as they find themselves in troubled times, as they find themselves facing the chaos of life, before they ever turn to God, they'll make a few moves. They'll lay out a plan. They'll consult with a few friends. And well, if all else fails, well, how about the pastor? How about the elders? Because everybody knows that beneath the nice clothes we wear to church, elders and pastors have Superman capes and Hulk-like muscles. As you're looking around wondering who's who, I tell you, a waistcoat hides a lot. No, I think it'd have to be on the farm or in the yard a little bit more to ever testify of muscles. But that's what we think. We think that it can all be figured out here. But if all else feels, okay, well, maybe God can help. I wonder tonight, as we consider our own generation, as we consider our place in this generation, where are the believers? Where are the men and women of spiritual maturity? Where are the young fathers and mothers of this generation? who live each and every moment with a right and reverential fear of God. Where are the believers today who come into the presence of God and say like Isaiah did when he beheld the Lord, when he beheld the holiness of the Lord, when he got a sense of just how great and majestic God truly was when he said, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King. Ah, but pastor, we live under grace. Our sins are forgiven. They're washed away. We don't come into His presence as Adam did with our guilt and our shame. (coughs) Neither we do. We never will. But friend, I don't for one moment believe that that removes from us the obligation to know our place. To recognize that we come the creature before the Creator. That yes, accepted by grace, we have a right of access into His presence. We have a right of inheritance there in His eternal reboot. But each and every day, we are mandated by that very same grace to live lives that are well-pleasing to Him. So I don't live my life in fear of Him because of those things that I've said or done. And yes, I don't labor to be accepted by him because I'm accepted in the beloved. But I unashamedly say I do labor in that which is acceptable to him. And I do live every day in fear of letting him down or bringing dishonor to his name. You see, one day we'll all stand before him. And on that day, I fear having nothing to cast at the feet of my Lord. To know that on that day my service is weighed, my motives are evaluated, my faithfulness is examined, 
I fear having nothing to show for it all. I believe that one second, one second after I die, I will know how I should have lived. One second after I close my eyes in death and I awaken to behold him, I will know the words that I should have said. I will know the example that I should have said. I will know the messages I should have preached. I, would have, I will know the life that I should have lived. And I tell you, that's what fills me with fear. To think that after it's all been said and done, that I missed it. And oh, tonight may you, may I, together, every one of us, may we be those who have a right and proper reverential fear of God. Yes, in our own lives. But oh, may it be the mark of our corporate gatherings also. May it be tangible that we all identify that we are living our lives in the very conscious presence of Jesus Christ. I believe Abraham was such a man. And to such a man, God said, fear not. To such a man, God gave assurance. To such a man, God entered into a covenant with. He says, fear not, Abram. I am. I am the God who can, but I am the God who will. I'm the promise-making, the promise-keeping, the all-powerful God of heaven and earth, the great I am. And I promise to be thy shield. And I promise to be thy exceeding great reward. The shield promises to Abraham divine protection. A shelter in a time of storm. No matter the trouble, no matter the trial, God was promising to take care of his child. Those promises remain to you and I today. Paul writes in Colossians 3, in the verse 3, Your life is hid with Christ in God. Psalm 5, in the verse 12, For thy Lord will bless the righteous with favor, will thou compass him as with a shield. Psalm 28 and the verse 7, The Lord is my strength and shield, my heart trusteth in him. Psalm 91 and the verse 4, He shall cover uh, thee with, the feathers, with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Psalm 119 and the verse 14, Thou art my hiding place and my shield, I hope in thy word. Psalm 30 and the verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Believer, take comfort tonight. The great I am is your shield too. His exceeding great reward communicates abundance. It communicates promised recompense for service rendered. So after many sacrifices evident already here in Abraham's life, 
And after many temptations to get ahead another way, Abraham receives the promise of God that as he has followed him, then God would be his great reward. Reminds us of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. He remains our shield. He remains our exceeding great reward. He's more than enough, and though our lot on earth may be small, great is our reward in heaven. Take comfort. The great I am is your shield. The great I am is your exceeding great reward. We see the call of God, we see the comfort of God, but we see also then, thirdly, the command of God. Come to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, and before we read together the verse 1, back up into chapter 16 and read the last verse of chapter 16 with me. Tells, tells us there, Abram was fourscore and six years old. Remember that number. And read with me the first three verses of chapter 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thy perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. Thirteen years have passed between verse 16 of chapter 16, verse 1 of chapter 17. And this chapter division testifies to a time period in which God and His servant have shared no preserved communion. Nothing has occurred that the Holy Spirit deems necessary for us to know. I often wonder what went through Abraham's mind in those times. What went through the mind of Sarah? Walking through the minds of his servants. Thirteen years where we believe God was silent. Looking back, we know that God had a purpose in all of this. There was a purpose in his silence. And it reminds us, does it not, to this very day that we should not be unduly distracted by time. For time will always move on. And yes, there's an urgency with which we must live our lives here below, but there's also a level of sensibility with which we must live our lives here below. We must prudently acknowledge that things happen according to God's timetable. He's never late, He's never in a hurry, He's always right on time. And so right on time, God appears to Abraham. And right on time, God reaffirms his commitment to his promises and reconfirms his desires for Abraham himself. Now this all happens once more against the backdrop of further revelation of the character of God. Again, seen in yet another name of God. 
In verse 1, he reveals himself to be, I am the Almighty God. Simply given to us in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. Once more, this is the first occurrence of this name in the Scriptures. But undoubtedly, this was a name with which all the patriarchs who followed Abraham were familiar. And as we read that term, the Almighty God, we instantly conjure up in our minds a God who has the ability to do all things. But that simple definition only goes part way to explaining all that this name truly becomes synonymous with as the Scriptures progress. This name, I believe, cements our belief not only in a God who can, but a God who will. For in that term, El Shaddai, in that term, the Almighty God has communicated the truth of a God who quite simply enacts divine will regardless of the perceived blockage or hindrance. It's a God of divine intervention. The God who is unlimited in His power the God who is unlimited in His provision, the God who knows no limits to the promises that He makes to dispense unlimited grace in the lives of His children, the God who is a life giver, but also the sustainer, the God who is without doubt or question the one who has the resources required to meet our needs, both temporal and spiritual, forever the God who strengthens us, the God who nourishes us, the God whose very presence quiets our fretful hearts, the God whose divine provision is the ultimate satisfaction to the weary pilgrim here below. That is what El Shaddai means. And that is a name that God reveals Himself to Abraham as. You'll notice in verse 2 and also verse 6 of this chapter, it's a name that promises fruitfulness. But you know, as we consider being fruitful for God, we're reminded that in order for things to be truly fruitful, there must be purging, there must be pruning, there must be careful attention given to ensure that the prime condition is known. And so as El Shaddai promises fruitfulness, it also communicates an intention to prune, to purge. And in no greater way do we see this than in the life of Job. And El Shaddai is found very often in this book of Job. He allows a purging experience to enter into the life of Job. Tonight, he allows purging experiences to enter into the believer's life also. Come with me to Job chapter 5. Read the testimony of a man who is being purged. A man who is knowing what it is to face that which God permits. 
but all with the perfect design, the perfect intention that he will be even more fruitful. Chapter 5 and verse 7. Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause. Which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who giveth rain upon the earth, sendeth waters upon the fields, to set up on high those that below, that those which mourn may be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope in the noonday as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope, and the iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom the God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty, else should I. This is the exhortation given to Job. This is the counsel that's shared with him, even here in this moment, as Eliphaz knows what it is to unburden himself. And whilst misguided, whilst misdirected, whilst misplaced in his understanding of what entirely is going on, it strikes at the very core truth of what we understand to be the underpinning purpose of God permitting this all in the life of Job. To allow Job to know the hand of God at work, the hand of El Shaddai there in his circumstances and his own experience. And it leads just a few chapters over for Job himself to testify this, but when El Shaddai knoweth the way that I take, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. God's dealings with me are not in judgment. God's dealings with me are, not to, are simply to purify me, to make me more fruitful. Did all of that come to pass? The outcome wasn't as Eliphaz and his other cool comforters desired or expected, no. But the outcome was exactly as Job predicted. For God's Word records that the latter end of Job was more fruitful than his beginning. God blessed him more in his days that followed this purging experience, this time whenever the hand of El Shaddai was very evident working and pruning and purging that which he was and that which he had. God blessed the end of it more than the beginning. And so tonight you may be in the midst of that valley experience. You may know the very purging experience permitted by God right now and it may be hard. Bitter may be the taste of that which he permits. But believer, hold on to Job's confession. Make it the refrain of your heart. He knoweth the way that I take. And when this is all over, I'm going to come forth as gold. Believer, trust the heart of El Shaddai. God reveals more of his character to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 17. El Shaddai. But he also confirms his desires for Abraham. He says, walk before me and be thy perfect. Now quickly, some have said that this is a condition of the covenant. 
Some have said that this is express proof that God desired obedience to be known in the life of Abraham if the conditions of what follows were to be fulfilled. But considering the statement in its immediate context, we're reminded that 13 years have passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17. In chapter 16, we have a startling reminder that the old nature never dies. Abraham let his selfish desires, he let his impatience impede upon his walk with God. Because of that, for 13 years, he had dealt with real-life consequences of his decision. For 13 years, the forward progress that he had enjoyed previous to this with God was stopped, was paused. And for 13 years, the scriptural record concerning God's dealings with him was silent. But now God speaks once more. Here in chapter 17, he reveals his desire that progress could be made. That a covenant could be entered into with Abraham. That the promises that he has made to Abraham will be fulfilled. And so he comes to Abraham and he says, here's who I am. I'm El Shaddai. And here's what I require of you. Walk before me and be thy perfect. And I don't believe that this was connected to the covenant because this is all prior to it. This was the truth that only upon the ground of obedience could a covenant be made. Required a God who was almighty, but it also required a man who was perfect before him. And remember, that word perfect never in Scripture communicates sinless perfection. It never conveys the idea of spiritual perfection. Rather, it implies one who knows completeness wholeheartedness. We'd prove it if we had time, but we don't. But we know that the Word of God is given to us to make us perfect, to make us complete, to make us able to run this race with patience and to finish well. So this exhortation to Abraham is simply this, walk before me, be perfect, be complete. Complete in your confidence that I am who I am. Complete in your confidence that I'm committed to what I've said. Notice verse 3. Abraham fell on his face. Submission, consecration, humility. So we come to the covenant. By now you've discovered I like a good introduction. But I do pray it's been a blessing to you. I do pray it's been worthwhile instead of rushing into the detail and receiving the blessing that's to contain therein that we're reminded ourselves of some great truths that provide the backdrop to this covenant. We've noted the call. Is God calling someone here tonight to do something more for him? Is he placed upon your heart an avenue of service, a specific service and you still haven't yielded? Still haven't submitted? We've reflected on God's comfort. He says, fear not. He reminds us that he is the great I am. He promises to be our shield and our exceeding great reward. Now we finish by rehearsing the command of God, the Almighty One. Walk before me with a whole heart. Live a life completely consecrated 
and yield it to him. How will you respond? He went. He believed. He fell on his face. Will you mirror the response of Abraham time after time? A man who submitted, a man who followed. Why? Because I believe with all of my heart that Abraham identified the same truth we've been rehearsing time after time. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. The same yesterday, today, and forever. One verse of our final hymn then, take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe, it will joy and comfort give you. Take it then where'er you go. Help us ever to walk in a way that is well-pleasing to Thee. Help us to live in that right and reverential fear of Thee. Help us, O Lord, to do what we do in order that we might truly know what it is to cast crowns at Thy feet and to welcome, be welcomed into our eternal abode. Depart us and keep us safe, O Lord, on our journeys home. With Thy blessing, go with us and protect us. Guide us in the days that lie ahead. And in, O Lord, our own lives, may we ever be looking for even the one who will return in just an instant. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.